are watching School Psych Podcast. My name is Rachel. I'm a school psychologist in Maryland. Really happy tonight uh, to be back with everybody um, during this crazy school year. So I, I think it's going to be good. This topic uh, tonight, we're talking about, you know, kind of the transition into those college years and what happens when, when our students go off um, and leave us. And right now I'm elementary level, but I did uh, work at high school for, for several years. And I think that all of us who have been school psychologists for a while know that just because you're elementary one one year does not mean that you are going to stay elementary. We sometimes get kind of get position changes and thrown around. So you just never know. So even if you're an elementary psych right now, um, you might want to kind of pay attention because you just never know what will come your way next. Um, so I'm going to pass it over to Rebecca, though. That's good. She's going to tell us how uh, you guys can participate tonight and be part of the conversation. Rebecca? Hello, thanks Rachel. Hello everybody. So I hope that if you are logged in to your YouTube account, you will see the chat feature right alongside the video that you're watching. Please feel free to comment and ask your questions there. We're all watching that uh, chat go on. We love the conversation and the energy that we usually find there. Also, if you are um, not wanting to um, comment with your name, you can feel free to message us on Facebook, on either of the Facebook pages, School Psyched Podcast page or School Psyched Your School Psychologist. And also you can tweet on Twitter using the hashtag Psyched Podcast. If you follow our um, Psyched Podcast Twitter handle, you'll see that we just posted and tagged our wonderful guests as well. So we can continue those conversations over time. If you're watching or listening to the recording um, after the live broadcast, please feel free to continue to chime in and tell us about your experiences working with kids, getting ready to transition to college. And now I'll hand it off to Eric, who's gonna introduce our wonderful guest. Thank you, Rebecca. Hi, everyone. My name is Eric, and I'm a school psychologist in Connecticut. And I'm excited, we're excited to have Elizabeth Hamlet with us this evening. She is a college learning disability specialist who has worked at the college level for two decades. In addition to working at a university, she's a nationally requested speaker and understood expert on preparing students with disabilities for successful college transition. She's the author of the book, from High School to College, Steps to Success for Students with Disabilities. And her work has appeared in numerous journals and online platforms. And you can find out more about her at www.ldadvisory.com. And she has a Facebook page as well under LD Advisory and Twitter um, at EC Hamlet, H-A-M-B-L-E-T. And welcome, Elizabeth. We're excited to have you here. I'm excited to be here. Yay. <laughs> As school psychologists, you know, maybe for, for at least for me, um, one of the biggest things that I think we don't often think about is what happens to our kids, especially our, our students di diagnosed or identified with LD after school. We focus so much on that, that piece in the, you know, in the, during the school years. And, and um, so tell us maybe a little about your work and, and a little bit about, you know, what, what happens to our kiddos when they get to your level? So uh, my work, uh, I work at a, an unnamed university um, and in non-COVID times, uh, uh, I go into an office, but it's, it's all here now. <laughs> I work one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, anybody registered with our disability services office can meet with me. Um, and uh, I work often, because it's college, with students on time management. That seems to be a very pressing need. 
um, but also on reading strategies, on writing strategies, organization, things like that. Um, so that is the really fun part of my job. Um, and then when I'm not working for the university, I am um, writing and trying to find ways to reach people because as you said, Eric, um, my training is in special education and um, I was trained where I lived in Massachusetts. We got trained by grade range. So grade, I think it was five through 12. And it wasn't until I started working at the college level that I realized that none of my training ever talked about what happens afterward and the rules are different. And so it became you know, a real interest of mine to try to bridge that gap. And so I think you know, my experience as in, in education is not dissimilar from that of people working in all sorts of fields that end up working with these kids. What yeah, might be, I, oh, go ahead, Rebecca. <laughs> I was just going to say, I mean, I want to jump right in and say, I love your Thank book. You. <laughs> and um, I also work uh, primarily with younger kids, but I, I have a real passion for connecting with parents. And I do work with some teenagers um, in the evenings at a private practice. And so I work closely with those parents. And I want to recommend this book to parents from high school to college, Steps for Success with Students with Disabilities. Um, you have, it's chock full of information. And I wondered if we could sort of take um, a, some cues of, for our conversation tonight from how you laid out the contents. Because I think the first thing that you talked about is so important um, in your step one, establishing a foundation for the law and research. And there is a difference between how the laws um, protect and provide for students with uh, learning disabilities in primary and secondary education and then later in college, right? And so um, what do you notice are the biggest confusions about the difference and what, what parents and students may um, expect and then discover is different? Sure, and I realized too, as we we're saying this, and we were we were laughing before that often with my poor working memory, I start something and I forget where I'm going with, and I forgot the end of Eric's question, so I apologize. Okay. Now, in a group of school psychologists, I feel like you'll have a very full cognitive profile on me before we're done here. Um, so, yeah, the differences, as you say. So, I think the biggest source of misunderstanding is 504. So, you know, I run this parent group for uh, college, you know, parents of students in high school and those who have transitioned to college with a disability. And I, you know, every once in a while we get somebody new in who says, oh, okay. Most people, I think, understand IEPs are not valid after high school, IDEA is not does not apply to colleges, but 504 is a subject of very understandable confusion. Um, and you'd have to get in the weeds to understand that. K through 12 is uh, subject to 504 subpart D, and post-secondary is subject to 504 subpart E. Did I say that correctly? And uh, so <laughs> subpart E is very different. Um, I mean, and if you really dig into 504D, and as you can tell I have, it even says in certain place, in some place that you might be able to write an IEP for a kid on a 504, which until I was reading it carefully, I had never seen before. Um, but essentially, it's almost the system flipped on its, on its head, if you will. So whereas we have child find in K through 12, at the college level, students have to self-identify to the college. And that happens after they're enrolled, um, and can happen as soon as they enroll. So if you get into Hamlet University early decision in November, you can send in your deposit to me 
and immediately register with my office. Um, but they have responsibility for submitting the paperwork, completing the process. Um, once that happens, if they are found eligible and, and given accommodations, they often have um, responsibilities with regard to the implementation of their accommodations. So I, I belong to a professional community uh, called AHEAD, the Association for Higher Ed and Disability. And I was just in our electronic community looking at some conversations about often, depending on the school, uh, even if you've been given extended time for tests, um, you, a lot of students have responsibility for alerting the office that they have a test coming up. So if my, you know, my biology midterm is this Wednesday, probably two weeks ago, I was supposed to submit a form to my liaison that says my exam is this Wednesday at eight o'clock in the morning. Here's my professor's name because my office has to contact the professor, tell her that I'm taking the exam someplace else so that she makes sure that she gets me the exam so the proctor has it when I walk in the door. So at a lot of colleges, students are at least responsible for part of that. So I've seen through, uh, through the community different ways that that can happen. It's a physical form where I work. Somebody mentioned in the community that it's done through the course management system, but the, the student still starts that process and has responsibility for it. And so those are the kinds of things our kids are often not accustomed to having to do. So, and I, I let me let me make a pitch for for my office and for you to get your kids to register with us before I go on. One of the things that the research shows us is that there are students who do not register with us because of a feeling of stigma. And one thing that you can tell them is, we don't have special ed classes at college. You're in the same class as your typical peers. Um, unless you're in a, you know, at the college level, fairly unusual situation where you have come with your own uh, personal aid and that's somebody you would have to provide, it would have to be approved. Nobody is going around like a co-teacher that I've had teacher students complain about, you know, checking over your shoulder, make sure you're taking notes. So they're very anonymous in a way that may be appealing to them. That's interesting. And I bet, too, there's a lot of fear of, of disclosure in the application process, but that's completely separate from what you do exactly. once that happens, right? Exactly. Do you run into, do you, I, I'm, I'm thinking of some of my kiddos who have, you know, executive functioning difficulties and you, like you said, are not maybe used to, you know, taking that initiative and planning that out and, and getting that form in and, and whatnot. Um, do you, do you have parents that tend to sometimes jump into that role, uh, whether or not that's appropriate or not, you know, uh, do you have parents that try to? I mean, uh, to not that, that I'm aware of, and I have a very distinct position then that it doesn't exist in a lot of colleges, this learning specialist position. Um, but my at where I work, my colleagues are called coordinators, and so that they serve as the student's contact point. I am not aware of, of a big, um, amount of that uh, happening. I think, um, you know, a parent who would try to do the first of all, obviously, the student would have to sign a release with us in the first place before anybody could even talk to the uh, parent. And then if a parent was trying to submit, let's say, a form, I mean, I imagine colleagues all over the field would, you know, 
want to talk to the student, you know, and probably wouldn't move forward because I mean, for all we know, the, the, the parent has access to the schedule and, you know, the student's calendar and sees the exam coming up and takes care of it. And the student has no intention of using those accommodations. We have no idea. So I certainly, you know, can't speak for the way all of my thousands and thousands of colleagues would respond to it. But I imagine in a lot of places, you know, I, I, I think that we are all human beings and we understand that there are students who are going to struggle with this and maybe in a first time they would, you know, want to sort of establish with the parent, like, this is something your student has to do. And if you need to be involved in that, then you, you speak to your student and you make sure your student gets that to us. I'm curious about um, identification, you know, when we're in, as you mentioned, child find, and we have these processes in, um, you know, throughout the, the school age child, um, you know, as far as assessment and evaluation and um, particular things that our states do in terms of interpreting IDEA for learning disabilities in particular, um, what kinds of things would you look for as far as, um, you know, medical assessments, school assessments, um, previous history to mm -hmm. determine um, need for supports? Right. So I, I mean, I can only speak for the places where I've worked. Um, and I will say too, one of the things, you know, Rebecca started by asking me, what are some of the misunderstandings and misconceptions? Um, I have seen parents say to other parents, oh my gosh, if it's not, you know, three years or fewer, they will not take it. And I want to say that there's always that possibility. There's, there are probably schools out of the 4,200 there are in the college, in the, in the country, excuse me. Um, that don't um, accept anything three years old in a day. But I think if you look around, there's a lot of flexibility um, across these schools. And so, um, you know, I, I don't, please don't ever accept somebody's word that this is the way it is and it's carved in stone and it's true everywhere. On my site, um, under um, the section for parents and students, it says, I'm sorry, families and students, you'll see a disability services um, research form. And it, this is for students who are looking at colleges to help them, you know, guide them through looking at schools, uh, disability services websites and see what accommodations are offered. And one of the things that prompts them to do is check the documentation requirements. So you could apply to eight colleges and every single one has slightly different requirements. The government doesn't dictate that to us. Um, so when it comes to learning disabilities, um, you know, if a school requires psychoed testing, a standard battery, <laughs> something that's recognizable um, to people, uh, nothing, you know, exotic, um, a Wexler, a Woodcock Johnson, a Stanford Binet in Detroit, um, or, and, you know, a standard battery of achievement. Um, and that's pr pretty much the standard for LD. Um, as far as history goes, I think a lot of our offices, and maybe I shouldn't, you know, give grant of this sort of um, credit, but understand that school districts don't diagnose. And so, you know, I don't think it's a deal breaker if a student comes through with a school based, you know, the school psychologist report here, the learning specialist report here, and nothing in it integrates it. I mean, for me, I would love to see that just because I, I it worries me that nobody's ever actually synthesized that stuff for the student. 
You know, I, I think one of the things that the research shows us too is sometimes they don't self-identify because they don't believe they have a learning disability or they don't know how to explain it. They don't know what it means. Nobody ever talked to them about it. And so I think that's, you know, something, even if it's not in the paperwork, I mean, it could go in the summary performance document that high schools are required to put together. I mean, there's a lot of variation that can be a place to do it if you didn't do it, you know, within the reports. So, um, you know, but some schools will take just an IEP. Some schools will take just a 504 plan. It just, it depends, it depends, it depends. Um, ADHD is one place I think you have to pay, you, you should suggest the parents, you know, really make sure they check this stuff as they go. There are schools that require psychoed or even neuropsych testing. And so I don't recommend that they do anything until the student gets into Hamlet University and decides that they're going to go there. That's the time when you make the appointment but they should at least be aware that that's a possibility so they don't get caught short. I think that, yeah, what you said, it, it highlights the importance and, and the fact that we're required to be bringing the student into these discussions during those that transitional IEP and when they're old enough, um, when they're 14 or can, can participate in those IEP meetings so that they understand what, you know, the, like when you mentioned that they might not understand that they have a learning disability or what that means or what, you know, so they need to be brought into this conversation so that they can kind of self-advocate advocate and know what's going on. I also um, wanted to mention too that I've had um, parents and people come to me saying that, yes, they need an updated battery. The child was tested, you know, last year or the year before pretty, pretty recently, um, but that they need an updated battery for updated norms for documentation purposes. So I think it's important. And some, and I was able to, at that point, like talk with the school and, and look at those requirements. And, you know, it was deemed that it would be sufficient for me to like write a letter saying, oh, you know, we're not updating testing, but this past test is still reflective and is still valid. And the university was okay for with that. So I think, yeah, what you said um, is so important about looking at the individual uh, university's kind of requirements for that. Good to know. Yeah, I mean, and it's not the school psychologist, you know, responsibility to know how, how, how 500 different universities, you know, require their students to document their disability, but to at least alert parents in the junior year, you know, as you start this search, take some notes, look it up, everything's online, um, and to at least start to, to get a sense of that. And, you know, I, I think probably if kids were tested, you know, at some point in high school, it's probably not going to be a problem. Um, but, you know, anecdotally, it, I have had parents approach me and say, um, you know, outside of my work, outside of my university work, say, well, my kid hasn't been tested since second grade. And that is going to be a problem. Um, and I, you know, and I understand there's a lot of pressure on schools, but it does. One of the things I always think is, when you saw a student, you know, a 17-year-old or an 18-year-old testing from when they were eight years old, and you say, this represents your cognitive functioning and your academic skills, I mean, what, what are they going to take away from that? You know, how are they going to feel they understand themselves? Yeah, that makes sense. It's not a current profile right. on, you know, the student's needs at the very least. Um, in, interesting, you know, th this is really a fascinating discussion already, just um, 
you know, the, the issue is so big, you know, we, we identify all these kids at, at the school age level and, um, you know, thinking about how they're supported in college and beyond. Um, what, what does the research say uh, just about success rates? Is there anything that tells us, you know, um, particular programs are, are more successful or universities that focus on oh, particular areas, outcomes, I guess I'm thinking. Well, that's a great question. I, I mean, the data, first of all, so National Center for Ed Statistics does not collect data all that frequently. Um, so I am trying to, I, I don't want to make stuff up. It's been a long time since I've seen a current um, number anywhere. And of course, you guys know, we don't even as a country collect data except at the six year uh, mark after high school graduate or start, I guess, start of college. And so I had seen a study a while ago, but I don't even know how old it was. Um, I mean, co college completion rates in this country are not what we would hope for them to be. And they are lower for students with disabilities. So I can sort of generally say that, but I, I don't want to misquote anything. But let me, let me find a positive angle. So what we do know from the research is that the students who do well tend to have parents who are supportive, um, have self-advocacy and self-determination skills, right? That they are um, actively using strategies, um, that they have a sense of, you know, we, learning styles are, are not supported by the research, but that they know what they do well and they know what they don't do well and try to avoid that. So I think, you know, being an active student, being an active in the sense of seeking help when you need it, um, using a study strategy on my website for free are a whole host of strategies for reading. I mean, I haven't invented anything. SQ3R is up there for those who remember that one. I mean, it's not the answer to everything, but it's at least a strategic approach. I've got some stuff about highlighting. Um, there's some interesting research. I don't know if you guys know the Dunlosky and, and Bjork, I think, um, and other researchers study the meta-analysis of study strategies from 2013. They did this huge meta-analysis. And on my site, I have the five strategies they found were effective. And then my suggestions for the strategies that they didn't find effective, how you might tweak those and utilize them. But, you know, obviously every learner is different and what works for student A is not going to work for student B, but, you know, I wish high schools were more deliberate about teaching study skills strategies explicitly. Um, you know, even the students who are very academically capable might benefit from finding a different way to approach things, and, and it would certainly benefit those who have not developed a strategy. Um, and that's an important conversation to have because of the things, going back to, you know, the differences that often aren't available at the college level. So I, I mentioned earlier, it's very unusual to have somebody with my background, a special ed, you know, degree, um, working in one of these offices and to, for students to be able to see somebody like me, you know, without any feet tacked on. So um, the kinds of things, every place I've worked, I've had students come in and ask, um, as an accommodation for either more tutoring than other students receive or one-on-one -on -one tutoring when the tutoring center only does, let's say, you know, three students to one tutor um, to meet with somebody with a special ed background. And none of those things are actually required, you know, colleges are required to provide. 
And so I think that is especially why teaching them the strategies and especially, let me put my pitch in for getting them accustomed to using assistive technology um, is so important. Getting them fluent and comfortable with that stuff before they get to college will just ease that transition. And to me, most, most importantly too, I want them to feel confident that whole self-efficacy piece of knowing that you have strategies to help you and utilizing them and having success is so important. Um, so, you know, making sure that families know, you know, I've had um, high school's special ed teachers say to me, well, there's so much emphasis on accommodation and they're not allowing us to really teach the strategies. And I would, you know, try to, use the information about the college environment to get, you know, get everybody to agree that yes, accommodation is important, but with an eye toward also teaching those strategies and, and perhaps taking away eventually the kinds of accommodation students are not likely to get at college. Yeah, those are such good points. I have um, two children in college right now and i'm going to direct them to your website when i log off tonight because um I, I that's what one thing that i found for both of them is that you know they're they're solid students they went to college thinking they had learned all the skills they needed but you know it's just not true and also navigating a campus to understand what services they offer all students like all those things and finding quiet places or noisy places, if you prefer that to study, all that, all of that takes a lot of time. And so mm -hmm. having kind of a, a go-to person in your corner to say, here are some options and here are some things that you should check out, it sounds so helpful. Um, I wanted to ask you about um, modifications because we've been talking about accommodations and um, it, you say in your book uh, that a 2015 study found that less than 1% of students um, were at four-year colleges were granted modifications or alternative tests, as opposed to 59% for students in high school. So that sounds like a big jump. <laughs> and I wonder um, if, you know, so many of our students with specific learning disabilities or ADHD also have anxiety that comes with that. And I wonder if, counseling service are and you know our counseling services are offered to kiddos that come into school with a 504 um more readily than because i find from my one my two children they have a limited number of times that you could visit the counseling center mm -hmm. because my um children would go often they like that they love talking to someone to get some advice and so go you know they're used to me so um <laughs> What do you think about all of that, both the modification piece and um, counseling services? All right. Well, I'm going to, if it's okay, I'm going to answer the counseling service piece because I think that's easier and a little bit more, you know, um, uh, died. It's Sunday night. Word finding is escaping me. Retrieval, add that to my list. Um, so uh, my office does not run where I work, the counseling center. My understanding is it's every two weeks. It's only for a certain number of months. And then if you continue to need services, they will refer you off. And I, I believe that that is fairly common. Um, so I will make a pitch and we, if you guys have show notes, I have not read this book, but um, there is a book called The Campus Cure by Marsha Morris. 
and she works in a, a college counseling center and she has suggestions for how parents can help make sure that their kids have access to mental health services while they're on campus. So um, as regards to whether or not having a 504 or any kind of history gives you um, precedence or, or preference, I am not aware of that uh, at the college level. And again, that is the kind of thing that might vary from school to school also. Um, so back to modifications, and I'm so glad you asked me, and I'm also glad that you quoted that those numbers to me because I wouldn't have remembered them. Um, but yes, I think modifications are, are a big deal. So um, there are students who will come in and ask to take multiple choice exams instead of essay exams for whatever reason, or vice versa, or they want essay exams because they have trouble working with multiple choice exams. Um, those kinds of things are not very commonly granted. I've certainly heard anecdotal stories about things like that or being allowed to provide answers orally instead of uh, on paper. But I don't, uh, you know, those statistics speak to this. It's from a big national study that was done on 12,000 students. So those kinds of things are important. Um, I think, you know, doing a project instead of writing a paper uh, reading a different book, reading fewer books are the kinds of things that, you know, are, are not likely to be granted. Now, are there students in any given college class who only read half the books with or without permission? Sure. They don't need an accommodation for that. <laughs> um, but it's not the kind of thing where that would be something that our office um, would approve. So, you know, it's, there are considerations. One of the big things, and I'm glad you brought it up, is, um, you know, and it's typically foreign language, but also so, um, math substitutions. So it's really important. And this is the only place to me where the disability piece does sort of figure into an admissions uh, point of view. So students um, who either attend, you know, who, who attend a high school and they, they ask to have foreign language is typically the one that, that's waived at the high school level. Um, if you apply to Hamlet University and I require you to have taken four years of high school foreign language, there's no modification required on our part. Uh, the government doesn't require us to modify our admission standards. Can I choose to admit you anyway? Absolutely. But students shouldn't expect if they don't meet the requirements that because they, if they mention having a disability when they apply, that that means there's a different gateway in. Um, same thing with the score. If you have to have a certain SAT score, and I don't know that colleges require that score as much as they have, um, you know, averages. If they require a certain GPA, all of those things are the same for typical students as for neurodiverse students. And so families should at least be aware of that while they're looking at colleges. But also, if you have not taken foreign language at the high school level and come to Hamlet University and I say, you have to take two years of the same foreign language in order to graduate. Um, I have to consider your request, but I don't actually have to grant you the accommodation if I convene all the powers that be at the college and we decide that this is, you know, a part of our curriculum and it's not negotiable. And so there was a case back in the 90s against Boston University that involved a lot of things, but one of the things BU prevailed on was holding on to their foreign language requirement. So I don't know if they've changed policy on that in you know now 25 years, I guess, but um, that is something they should be aware of. So what I encourage students to do is 
you know, check those kinds of things. I mean, look to see if you are going for um, a, a certain kind of degree. If you want to do international business as a major, even if the college itself doesn't require two years of foreign language to get out, your major might. And that would be considered a fundamental alteration to not take those that language for that kind of major. Um, psychologists typically have to pass statistics in order to get their degree. And that's the kind of thing that wouldn't be substituted. And so, you know, if you're looking at a bunch of sort of similar liberal arts colleges, check those kind, check the graduation requirements. And if college A has them and college B doesn't, maybe you're more interested in B. So, when, so when a student, you know, they leave us and they go and they're, they're registering with you um, and seeking a, a, the 504 plan and to establish that. When I think of 504 plans and how we do it in the school system, I think of a, a team, kind of like an IEP team. And when we sit down and we go through the paperwork and we talk about what works and what doesn't and we make a plan kind of very collaboratively together. What does that process look like at the college level? Is that of a similar nature or is that a, I'm requesting these things and they're either that's a great question. I'm glad you asked. And actually, again, I feel like this is a selling point. Um, I have a very unpopular opinion that I've expressed in other places that asking kids to direct their IEP meeting is not the sole and singular way to prepare them for college. Um, and the reason I think that is that there are other ways to do it. Obviously, aren't we all about accommodating and individualizing? But also because that's not the kind of meeting you're going to have at college. And so at a lot of schools, you will fill out a form, whether online or, you know, old school paper, and you'll turn it in and you can look up these um, forms. I have, again, on my website under families and students, I have put together um, what I call it, uh, it's a DS prepar uh, interview, I think, preparation form that is a great tool to start going through with kids before they are seniors to see what kinds of knowledge they have about themselves. And it sort of mimics what a, a college registration form looks like. So have you had any accommodations in the past? What are you requesting now? Why do you need it? Have you used it in the past and was it effective? And so a lot of schools also require an intake appointment where maybe for a half an hour you'll meet with a liaison. But to your point, Rachel, um, we do not once a year call students and all of their professors in and have them all, you know, say, and how is Elizabeth doing in her philosophy class? So that kind of stuff does not happen. And again, another selling point to get them to register with us. Um, but essentially, once you've gotten through that intake appointment, then the next piece, it's not really a plan. And that is another thing too on my blog, which is separate um, on a different platform than my um, website, I have a post about vocabulary of disability services. And the difference between, you know, at, at, at the high school level, it's called a case manager. And at the college level, not everybody uses the, the terminology, but I think the coordinator is a more accurate term um, because, you know, my colleagues and in, in other places that I work, they are not, for instance, calling the professors every term to see how I'm doing. Um, they are not checking in with me to ask whether I've gone for any tutoring. It's not really case managing at a lot of offices. And again, perhaps so at some of my colleagues' uh, places. Um, but I think that that's an important distinction. And so 
um, you know, those kinds of things are um, not really, you know, it's a real difference. And I've lost, I've lost the train of thought. It was bound to happen eventually. I'm surprised I made it this far. I'm sorry, Rachel, was there something on the end of that question? No, I think that's good. I was just, you know, trying to get in my mind kind of what, what to picture that. And then is that something that's um, revisited just the student as needed would say, oh, I need this other accommodation or is there, there a yearly review sort of? Uh, that's a great question. So um, not any place that I have worked, is there another review? So generally, and this is such a good point, and I think what I wanted to get back to was, um, what what happens at the end of the review process is you know again student submits the information the documentation the form has the intake and whatever the process is and it varies from college to college somebody reviews it and it first says yes you're eligible for accommodations which will be i would think for the most part i don't have numbers from any study that i can think of on who was found eligible versus not i just haven't seen that research um, and then, uh, you know, every place I've worked um, in, in 20 years, it's been what we call an LOA, a letter of accommodation. Um, and, I, and I mentioned that by way of saying, um, I've had parents say to me, well, what my kid has is called a 504 plan, but it's not a plan. So you guys write all these plans with goals and objectives and things like that. And most colleges are not engaged with that at all. Essentially, it says, Dear Professor Rebecca, Elizabeth Hamlet is a student, and this is really important, with a disability. Um, I think the majority of my colleagues don't say what that disability is because we consider that private, and that is the student's business to, to, to provide more information or not. Again, another selling point to get them to register with us. And here are the accommodations she's been approved for. Um, you know, maybe some language like, please remember there are laws about this stuff, and if you have any questions, you contact me. So um, at some schools, as I said, that gets communicated through an email in the school, uh, in the management, class management system, or there's another system that the, that the Disability Services Office has where I work, it's letters, and the students have to have the, the, the professors sign them, and the students return them, so we have a record that the professors have seen the letter. Um, you know, in case there's any questions. Awesome. That that helps to clarify. And then, because I've I've seen situations too where um, families will come in for an IEP meeting and they understand that this transition is about to happen, and then um, they want to like beef up the the accommodations and the goals and the things on the 504 with the assumption that you're going to take this 504. Or even I've had families on an IEP say, okay, let's switch over to a 504 because we know colleges do 504s and they want to, you know, get everything that they need on there and to take it to the college. So it's it's good that you're explaining that that's, that's not how it works. <laughs> I'm so glad you said that. I mean, what's really important for people to understand, and again, this is not explicitly in the language of either um, 504 or the ADA, but essentially from a legal standpoint, those plans expire once the kids graduate from high school. Um, and so I have had parents say, well, he got exactly the same accommodations he had in high school. And that's probably because those are really appropriate accommodations for that student. Um, but yes, I mean, look, I, my feeling is students should, should reach for the stars and they should ask for whatever they want and they think they need because maybe the school will find that, you know, re relevant to them. But I think, you know, what's, what's a 
really good thing to do with them is review again their their testing and i realize the testing is certainly just a snapshot and it's not everything but how are you going to defend why you need certain accommodations um so to give a really dumb example if you have an auditory processing disorder and there's no other sort of processing speed problem why do you need extended time on written tests you know if, if it's it, and nothing is ever quite that clean i understand but in other words there would need to be some relevance to what you know what we're seeing and so that's how I would, and one would hope that anybody making recommendations for accommodations would use that as a guide. Um, so just to tack things on because they think they, they might be useful. And it's okay for students to say, look, I never recorded my classes in high school, you know, because it wasn't loud or, or something else, but I think because of my, my auditory processing speed problem or my processing, you know, issues, I'm afraid that I will miss a lot and I need to be able to catch up. And it's okay if, if there's evidence that there's a reason to allow tape recording, tape recording, dinosaur, um, permission to record, um, then there would be, you know, then that would be an easy approval. I know Rachel touched on this early on, but I would imagine that a lot of parents call you. <laughs> and I wonder if you are allowed to provide them with any information or um, guidance, because there's, I know I can't even get my child's grades unless right. so they give again, them to me. Again, <laughs> in my position, parents don't generally get to me, um, but, uh, you know, as, as anybody who sends a child to college knows, the only thing they're willing to send you without the student's permission is the bill. So you can guarantee you'll get that. Um, and you know, one other thing that, that I think is really important is even if we can get your student to sign a FERPA release, it doesn't obligate us to then report back to the parents. And so, and, and there may be information we don't have. So if my mother wants to know how I'm doing in said philosophy class, you know, it, the coordinator is not obligated to contact the professor simply because I have signed the release for them to talk to my mother. Um, and the professor is not required to report to the parent. And so, you know, I, I don't know, I, I couldn't speak for my colleagues as far as how much contact we have. And, you know, I, I see in my uh, professional community some stories, but it, it feels like it, it's, they're the exception and not the rule. So I do think a lot of parents really get it. Um, and look, the research shows us also when we go back to the positive side that students who uh, tend to be, um, who are uh, successful in college with, who have disabilities tend to be those who have supportive parents. So, you know, all of us as parents, myself included, try to walk, you know, walk that line very carefully between supporting and enabling. And, you know, I can't tell any parent where that line is and it's different from parent to parent, but I think, you know, again, I really believe in the importance of self-efficacy. And I have a friend who is a college, um, a private college counselor. And she has, over the years that I've known her, worked with students who are getting tutored every single day after school to get their GPAs as high as possible to get into a certain kind of school. And I am terrified for these kids because I think that, first of all, just from, again, a self-confidence standpoint, knowing that you're going to go to college and, you know, you're not going to come home from class and find the tutor sitting there waiting for you, 
Now, in fairness, it's possible that that is happening for some students. Parents are paying for it, finding somebody locally. But I, I still feel like it's, it's, it's not giving student enough credit for what they can do on their own. And that I worry about when we talk about anxiety, I would think that that would really create anxiety in kids that know it's not going to be the same level of support or it's, and it's going to be a very different learning environment. And maybe tutors will not be able to supplement the kinds of stuff that they were able to in a much more structured high school environment. Yes. And, and speaking of um, school counselors, um, I know there are a lot of um, families that in addition to their actual school counselor in their, in their high, at their high school, hire a private counselor to help navigate like creating the list and here's here's the timeline and all the it's the college application process is so difficult and laden with work whatever route you take whether you get extra outside help and tutors for testing and, and your classes or not um it just makes me wonder about this added layer of um difficulty managing the probably the busiest uh, junior year of your high school career, plus kind of an entire extra set of obligations. And um, it, it's kind of like having an extra course, uh, the application process. And uh, our kids with LD are going to feel the sort of burden of that, I think, even more, um, and their families. But what would you recommend for kids and families who are approaching the college process um do you you don't connect at all with high school counselors or have anything about um, i've written an article so for american school counselor association I, I, it's a couple of years old but it's at, it's available if you if you have their membership and i wrote an article for those counselors again just trying to bring up the ideas of you know making sure they understand that the supports are not the same and what to be looking for so i mean as far as the college search i mean I presented a couple of years ago um, at IECA, the Independent Educational Consultants Association, with a really impressive um, private counselor who's been working in the LD space for, you know, I think, you know, 20 years. And she was advising other private counselors about the need for this process to take, you know, longer and, and to accommodate the, you know, the processing and the amount of time it was going to take and the amount of repetition they might have to give these students. And so I think, um, I know as far as public school counselors, I think that there's a lot of pressure on them and they have a lot of students to deal with. Um, I, I think just a more general idea, and again, I don't work with admissions at all, is just to make sure that it's the students' needs guiding um, you know, the, 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 the search and that maybe instead of applying to and seeing 10 schools, maybe five is okay. You know, I think that there's a lot of, I mean, the numbers are insane compared to when I was in school. Um, I, I think um, I had a point, let me see if I can get it back. Um, we were talking about um, applications to schools. Now see if it comes back. <laughs> Yeah, I was just having empathy for um, that those counselors and the kids and their school psychologists in that junior year because it, that's so much. And I bet 
there's sort of natural um, anxiety that comes with that process and then finding the right school. Um, Rebecca, I, 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 I railed it back. So the question I, <laughs> the, the point I was going to make too is I, I would counsel um, everybody to just be aware that um, there is a list. I mean, there are, I don't know, a couple of dozen schools. They tend to be mostly clustered on the East Coast, I found, that offer these fee-based services. So I live in New Jersey. We have uh, Fairleigh Dickinson, which has this very long um, established and well-respected uh, fee-based program that they run. Um, and so I have had parents say to me, oh, the kind the counselor at my kid's school takes all you know refers all those kids all those kids all the kids with LD to the schools with the fee-based services there's no nuance to this discussion at all um, University of Arizona is the most famous one probably with the big they've got their own freestanding building out there for the salt program and so what I would caution folks is not every student with a learning disability or ADHD needs that program needs the fee-based program um, and part of the way you can figure that out, and there's some stuff in the book too, is you know what's the student's level of independence? How much can they do without assistance? Um, and so that's one thing. Don't don't let students get pushed into those colleges just because there's a fee-based services. And and on my blog, so there's a lot of bonus content that didn't make it in the book that I released in my blog, and I interviewed the directors of three of these programs, talking about things like who's a good fit for this program, who's not a good fit for this program, what do you guys require of these students? I mean, you can't just not show up. And so families who are interested in those programs also really need to do their research and the kid ha there has to be buy-in from the kid. If they're saying there's no way I'm ever gonna show up at the SALT Center, I think you've got your message. So there are other ways you know, to, to go about that search, but I do wanna make sure, you know, and. Also, they should make sure that they do the research to see what is and is not available. So I've had parents in this Facebook group say, oh, well, my student needs a mentor. Well, unless somebody's established a program for that at the college, it's not an accommodation um, particularly. And so if that's what they are looking for, then the student needs to look for colleges that offer mentoring programs. And so I think these are things in fairness that families don't realize until after the students started in school and sees that, um, you know, and has some experiences. But um, one of the things too, you know, going back to the example of a student who gets so much support after school, if that's what they're used to, and if you haven't tried to taper that back before senior year, maybe you do want to look at a fee-based program. That's really interesting to hear about. And, you know, I'm I'm hearing more about colleges that have more specific programs for kids with uh, more significant disabilities or or less independence as well. Mm -hmm. um, we have a program in Connecticut uh, at Eastern Connecticut University for students with um, intellectual disabilities. Mm -hmm. So more uh, job based, but it is uh, diploma based uh, program too, which I just think it's great and. I'm just appreciating what you're doing and that there's uh, so much more um, openness and supportiveness to neurodiversity um, in our learners. And um, so I'm just wondering your experience, you've been doing this for a while, how have things changed? Have you seen um, big changes in the field over the last couple decades as you've been doing this? 
I mean, that's a great question. I, I mean, I think the assistive technology has certainly changed. Holy cow, since I started in the late 90s. Um, and that's a big change. Um, I, I don't know that I see that many trends. And again, it may be particular to the kind of work I do. I mean, every place, one of the things I see from colleagues is increases in the numbers of students registering with us. And I take that to be a real victory. I think that, you know, the, because that study that Rebecca referenced that, that I talk about in the, um, in the book, the Long National Longitudinal Transition Study, it was something um, wild. Like only 24% of the students who had had an IEP for a learning disability at the high school level had registered for accommodations at college. And I may be misquoting that number, but, um, it really speaks to, and that you know that that data is quite old at this point. So I think it speaks to the fact that hopefully students are a you know more um, more aware of this that the fact that there are accommodations. I mean, I still occasionally am online and see something that just makes my heart break. Like I, I, a couple of years ago, the same French pointed me to a a post by some college counselor on a you know a local patch site saying, oh well you know, accommodations are really only for students with physical disabilities. And I thought, holy cow, this person's advising students. So um, I think we're getting better at recognizing disabilities on, in some students, perhaps, hopefully, and we are making them aware of the availability of accommodations. And maybe they are feeling, some of them, you know, are not, there's a percentage of them not feeling the stigma, perhaps that others do, and just wanna self-advocate. Awesome. Really great information. I know we're running short on time. So if anybody has any questions out there, be sure to get them in. Um, as we're wrapping up, though, um, I wanted to know, I had kind of two questions that I'm wondering if I can kind of combine them too. One, I wanted to know how COVID has kind of changed things um, in your world, because obviously that that throws everything up in the air. And then we also at School Psych Podcast talk, have been trying to have kind of a social justice lens. And I'm wondering how, as far as COVID too, and um, if, if you're seeing um, an unequal impact on students, how, how, how is that playing out? Boy, I mean, that's, that's a big one. Um, certainly COVID has changed our work tremendously. I'm speaking to students over Zoom. Um, I would say on the positive side, a lot of classes are being recorded. So it's easing note taking for students who want to go back and, you know, review things over again. Um, it is not advantageous for some of our, I mean, and they can, if the class is not being held live, they can pause it, you know, as they go and kind of take it in. Um, on the other hand, some students are not enjoying that things are not live and, you know, they may be shy about asking questions, sending an email to the professor afterward to say, I didn't understand when you said this. Um, so that is, that is, I think there's, there's a give and take on both sides of that. I mean, as far as the social justice piece, I have not personally, um, you know, had any experiences with that, but I certainly, you know, try to keep up with the news and the research and we're seeing a lot of disparities. Um, you know, I, I, I honestly, you know, uh, I know that there are colleges that don't have dorms open except for students, students who might not have access to internet connections and things like that. So I'm aware of those things happening. Um, but I, I think, you know, we, we have, we have very big social justice issues to deal with, um, that, that fall, this falls under. 
Thank you so much. This has been a really great discussion. And um, I, I know like it's hard to let go of our kids and, and worry about them, but it makes me feel so much better that there are people like you out there on the other side at colleges. And I hope everyone um, listening will check out your um, book and your website and your blog. I haven't checked that out yet myself, so I'm looking forward to that. Um, I also want to mention to our viewers out there as we wrap up, um, feel free to pop in any last minute questions or thoughts and um, join us in two weeks, the Sunday before Election Day, to talk with <laughs> Rebecca Brandsetter of Notes from a School Psychologist blog um, and the Thriving School Psychologist Collective. I hope I said those correctly, but we are going to talk about a lot of things, including National School Psychology Week and her wonderful work in helping school psychologists thrive through tough times. Good, you guys need all the support that you can get right now, right? Everybody's job has been made more challenging. Yeah. But thank you so much for joining us. This has been great, and I for sure learned a lot. Yes, definitely. Absolutely. Thank, thank you, you, Elizabeth. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.